We now have the privilege of hearing from our God and His Word. We're going to read two passages this morning. First, Acts chapter 17, uh, verses 1 through 9. If you're using one of the church's Bibles, you'll find that on page 926. And then we'll be turning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, which will be our main passage uh, this morning. First, Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9. The grass withers, the flower falls, but this, the word of our God, is eternal and it abides forever. And so let us give our full attention to the reading of it. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on um, he went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd." And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And now turn with me, if you will, to First uh, Thessalonians. We're going to read the whole of chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Again, if you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 986, 1 uh, Thessalonians chapter 1. Again, this is our God's Word. Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ grace to you and peace we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not in word not only in word but also in power and in the holy spirit and with full conviction you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake and you became imitators of us and of the lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the holy spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait 
for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. Uh, This ends the reading of our God's word. This morning, let us ask his blessing on our time in it. Our great God of truth, we confess that we are prone to believe lies. We are easily swayed and led astray. The simple reality is that we give ear to voices that we ought not, and we believe things that are simply not true. And worse still, we often believe things about you that you have denied. We believe that you're limited by our strength, that you're constrained by our sin, and that our wickedness is greater than your mercy. And so as we now turn to your word, we ask that you would root out all lies, destroy all impostors of the truth, that you would renew our minds in the knowledge of your word. All of this we ask in the name of him who, he who is the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, we're beginning a new sermon series today. We were supposed to start last week, uh, but Pastor Isaac uh, wasn't able to go to the Warm Springs trip, so I left a day early and he preached last Sunday. Uh, we finished Malachi a few weeks ago, and uh, for a while now I've been thinking about spending some time in First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, I really can't imagine doing one without the other because they go together. They are a unit, a pair meant to be read together. And they are written into a situation that's quite frankly not very different from our own situation. Uh, Thessalonica was not a friendly place for Christians. Uh, Many of us know about Berea. We've read about Berea in in Acts 17, uh, that those people who were called noble-minded, right, because they received, they listened to Paul's preaching, receiving the word, were told with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. Or There's always that challenge, be like the Bereans. But do you remember how that verse started? Now, those in Berea were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, right? Thessalonica is the opposite of Berea. It's contrasted with Berea. Something Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, was able to hold up and say, look how great the Bereans were. They weren't like those Thessalonicans. That's not a reputation you want. So what was wrong with those in Thessalonica? Well, things started well. Uh, Paul and Silas, uh, also known as Silvanus, uh, went into the synagogue there, as was their custom, and and they started to preach for three consecutive uh, Sabbaths. Uh, Paul spent time carefully opening up the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, and all the promises about the Messiah, specifically showing them that the, the Old Testament clearly taught that the Messiah must suffer, be killed, and rise again on the third day. And from there it was easy for him to say, guess who's done all of this? Jesus has done everything foretold by the prophets. Jesus is the long-awaited Christ. He is the long-awaited Messiah. And convinced, some Jews and even some Gentiles placed their faith in Jesus. And yet this angered many in town. Uh, uh, there was the Jews who were opposed, but there was also uh, the pagans in Thessalonica 
known for their idolatry. And in fact, there was a great trade uh, in, in Thessalonica with people who made uh, idols for worship. And people converting to Christianity was bad for business. And so some stirred up a mob. They went after Paul. They went after Silas. And they brought false charges against these new Christians. They forced them to pay large sums to be set free. In other words, being a Christian in Thessalonica was not easy and it was not comfortable. But those who trusted Jesus in this town, they counted peace with God more important and more valuable than earthly comfort. They, they had to count the cost. This was not a place where it was easy to follow Jesus. They were dedicated. And because of that, their faith was admired. In fact, stories were told. Their reputation moved on. But now, as Paul takes up pen to write to them, it's been a few years. It's been a while since they first believed. And Paul uh, has gone on to, to preach the gospel elsewhere, and, and so far he's been prevented from coming back and visiting them. And as you read on in this book, you'll see that they're growing tired. And they're growing discouraged. And it's common. We get worn down. We get burned out. We get to that point where we just want the hard times to end. And you know what happens when, that, when we get like that, don't you? We, we get irritable. <laughs> We start looking for someone to blame. Whether that's our parents or our spouse or our children, our friends, our employers, church leaders, or or whomever, we look for someone whom we can blame for making our lives hard and we yell at them. And those in Thessalonica were starting to blame Paul. Why hadn't he come back? Why had he abandoned them? Now, that wasn't the real issue going on. The real issue is how do you deal with discouragement? How do you deal with exhaustion? How do you keep going? Where do you find the strength to persevere? And Paul Paul understands that. Even though he's being accused of things, he understands that the real issue is deeper And so he's going to spend his time answering the real issue. He'll address what they think the issue is. But he wants to go a lot deeper than that. That's what he does in this book. And really, the main point of our section, the introduction, and the book as a whole is this. When tired and exhausted, Christians need to go back to the basics. Faith, hope, and love. And find strength there to press forward. That's what they needed almost 2,000 years ago. And that's what we need today. And so um, what I want to do is look at those three things today. Faith, hope, and love. They are all outward focused. Uh, Faith is directed towards God. Hope is directed towards the future. uh, And the return of Jesus Christ. And love 
is directed towards one another, towards our neighbors. Uh, Faith rests on something that happened in the past. Hope looks forward to something that will happen in the future. And love is something we do in the present between those two realities. And so the way these three things work together is the answer to how we persevere uh, in a fallen world that is often uh, very opposed to what we believe. That's what we want to see uh, this morning. We're going to spend time looking uh, first at faith, then hope, and then love. Uh, So the first thing Paul does as he addresses these exhausted Thessalonian Christians, uh, the first thing he needs to do is rehearse their past. Take them back to their story and remind them of how they came to faith and the cost that they were willing to bear in order to follow Jesus. Uh, To put it simply, at, at this point, he's probably more convinced that their faith is genuine than they are. Have you ever been there? Beaten up and worn down, wondering if you are even a Christian. You look at what you've done in your exhaustion, you look at your irritability, or maybe the sin you've allowed yourself to fall into... And you think, did I ever really believe? Did I ever really follow Jesus? You lose your way. And when you do, you need to go back to the beginning. And so that's what Paul does with the Thessalonians. He knows their beginnings as well as anyone because he was there. He was the one who first brought the gospel to them. And, and, and the first thing he did when he, when he rolled into Thessalonica was, was tell them about Jesus. And he didn't come in with this, this great uh, uh, sales pitch. If you just follow Jesus, your life will be easy and you'll get rich. He, that was not what Paul preached. He opened up the Old Testament prophets and all that they foretold about the coming Messiah. And, and, and Luke says the necessity of his sufferings and death. Not the possibility, the absolute necessity. From the very beginning, he shared honestly that we have a Savior who is well acquainted with grief. One who is stricken and smitten and afflicted. Paul talked about the resurrection and the fact that the death did not have the final word. Help was, I mean, hope was held out. Victory was assured. But he didn't soft pedal the road of suffering that was necessary to get there. And that he openly proclaimed. But then Paul, Paul reminds them that they, they understood that this wasn't just Jesus who would suffer and rise again. Paul and his associates lived that same reality before the Thessalonians. Uh, They were falsely accused in Thessalonica. They were mistreated. They were forced into hiding. These Christians in this town witnessed firsthand the cost of following Jesus. The cost of discipleship. There was no illusion that suffering was the sole privilege of the Savior. But that it belonged to all who identify with Jesus Christ. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy lived, followed, embodied the very pattern set by Jesus Christ. One of affliction. 
when they came and they proclaimed the gospel in Thessalonica, they did it in the midst of suffering, of hardship and affliction. And so when the Thessalonians came to faith, they did so counting the cost. That's what verses 4 through 6 are all about. In verse 4, he says that, that he knows that they are elect. He knows that they are loved by God. He knows that they are chosen. And then he says why in verse 5. Because he witnessed the Holy Spirit's power in their conversion. There is no earthly explanation why these people would identify with Jesus Christ other than the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in their hearts and lives. He knows that they didn't simply claim to believe because it was easy, because it was popular, because that's what their friends were doing. Their faith was real, given by the power of new creation, by God's grace working in their hearts. Now, how does he know that? Because they knew what kind of men Paul and Silas and Timothy showed themselves to be, verse 5. Specifically, they were imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ, willing to suffer now for the hope of glory that lies ahead. Verse 6. And yet, knowing all of that, being fully aware of the cost, they still received the word of God with great joy, even though it was accompanied by much affliction. Verse 6. Paul says, I know your faith is real. Because you counted the cost when you believed. And that's all the proof Paul needs. Because who is willing to suffer if they aren't convinced that what they are suffering for is worth it? Who's willing to endure such heartache unless they are convinced that the one to whom they are entrusting themselves is worthy of that heartache? And he says they didn't just do it, they, they did it with joy. This is one of those concepts that, that gets so misunderstood in the church, and it really shouldn't. Joy isn't some superficial, happy-go-lucky, goofy grin. <laughs> hey, I'm suffering. <laughs> That's not it. Joy is a deep conviction that something is worthwhile, or even a privilege... Because of a deeper understanding of the big picture. When a child says to their parent, Thank you for being up in the middle of the night with me while I'm throwing up, and the parent says, It's a privilege. They don't mean the event, they mean loving you is a privilege and a joy. Being there for you is a privilege and a joy. So Hebrews says that, that Jesus endured the cross what for the joy set before him. The cross was painful. He didn't want it. He didn't want the cross. But understanding that, that it was the road to glory, not just for him, but for those whom he loves, he was willing to endure even with joy. He delighted in what it accomplished. And so, going to that cross, our Lord was at perfect peace. That word peace in the Bible, uh, perhaps you know the Hebrew word that it comes from, shalom. That's a powerful word in, in the Hebrew understanding. Shalom, 
uh, it is a blessing of being at perfect peace. It, it, it refers to wholeness. Uh, it doesn't mean a lack of adversity in your life. It, it's a confidence that you are at peace with your creator and that he is at peace with you. It, it comes from a right ordering of all your priorities. The one who has God's shalom, his peace, is able to see past the circumstances of this world. The one who has it is not driven and tossed every time circumstances change. Because his confidence can't be shaken every time something doesn't go his way. Because he can see past it, he can see the big picture. And he knows who holds the future. He knows who holds him. Did you notice how our passage began? Grace to you and peace. That's not just uh, a mindless greeting and expression. Paul's wishing them the blessing of understanding God's perfect peace in the midst of their struggles. But it's not something he hopes they receive. It's something they already have by his grace. And what he really wants for them is to understand and enjoy and experience the peace they have in Jesus Christ and to live it out. But to do that, he, he, he doesn't just have to remind them of their past and how they came to faith, how they came to believe, how they counted the cost and the powerful working of God's spirit when, they, they, when he enabled them to turn from their idols to believe in Jesus Christ, even with great joy in the midst of affliction. He also has to remind them of their future. And that's where he turns when he addresses hope. The reason they were able to to bear affliction with joy is because they were confident that the cost was worth the reward. Do what you can to me. I've got a better reward coming. Look at verse 10. They are confident that that the God who raised Jesus from the dead will again send his son to deliver them from the wrath to come on the last day. Uh, Just as the suffering of Jesus on the cross did not have the final word with Jesus, it won't have the final word with those who follow him. That's what enabled them to believe when Paul and the others came and preached them. It was hope. And biblical hope isn't a wish. I really hope this goes well. It's not a wish. Biblical hope is a firm confidence that God will keep his promises. It's called hope not because it's unsure. It's called hope because it's future. Because it's about what will happen. And so our understanding as Christians of the end is essential to our perseverance in the face of hard times. Notice how Paul refers to hope in verse 3. The steadfastness of hope. Uh, The only thing that enables us to remain steadfast, uh, to persevere, uh, to be resolute, to not give in, to not give up, or to throw in the towel, is our hope. 
our absolute confidence that, that there is a day coming when Jesus Christ will come and set all things right. That he will come and he will judge the living and the dead. And that we who have put our trust in him will be delivered from the wrath and judgment to come. That, that is the source of our peace. That, that's the source of our shalom and our joy. That's what enabled the Thessalonians to place their faith in Jesus Christ in the first place. And if, and if they want to find uh, strength to, to, to face the, the adversity they're facing, to, to find strength in the midst of discouragement and weakness, that's where they're going to have to turn their, their focus once again. What Paul is saying here is the same thing he would later say to the Christians in, in, in a town called Philippi, the Philippians. In his letter to them, he says this. Listen for the same things to echo out once again. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your, un- I say, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, you hear all the same themes, don't you? Rejoice, have joy. Uh, Hope, the Lord is at hand. And peace, do not be anxious. The peace of God will guard... uh, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. These are common themes in Paul's writings. Common themes in other apostles as well. And the reason these are common themes is because what the Thessalonians are facing are common struggles. Do you ever grow tired? (laughs) Discouraged? Do you ever doubt your faith? whether you're truly a believer, whether, whether you'll be able to face persecution if it comes. Do you ever lash out at those who have loved you simply because you're scared? Do you ever struggle to find strength to keep going when things get hard? If so then you need what the Thessalonians needed. You need what the Philippians needed. You need what others needed. You need your eyes to be put back on Jesus and all that he endured for you. You need to remember that you counted the cost and you found the reward worthy of the cost you had to pay. You need your eyes directed toward the last day And what will be yours when Jesus calls you home to be with him for all eternity? That's what you need. And that's what 1 and 2 Thessalonians are all about. It's pretty timely. But there's one question that still remains. Okay, so if that's where I was and where I've come, and that's where I'm headed in the future, faith, hope, What do I do while I wait?
That's what Paul addresses in his third statement. What we do in the present. What we are to fill our time with while we await the return of our wonderful Savior. That's what he addresses when he talks about labors of love in verse 3. This is where Paul wants to direct them, but he's he's not calling them to do something new. He's calling them to continue in what they've already done. He's pleading with them to not lose focus, not lose uh, perseverance, but to keep going, to finish the race. So he says that the love they received from God that was shown to them through Jesus Christ, that was mirrored to them in Paul and Silas and Timothy's ministry to them, they then echoed forth to others. In fact, the, the word translated and sounded forth, as, as sounded forth in verse 8, is the Greek word that we get the word echo from. He says everything they received reflected off of them to others. It echoed. Just as, as others loved them, as others sacrificed for them, as others served them, they in turn then loved others, sacrificed for others, and served others. In fact, they have quite a reputation for being just that kind of people. Being generous, loving, and sacrificial for others. Because they took the word they heard and they proclaimed it to those in Macedonia and Achaia. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 8 that their model of love was so great that others have been talking about the Thessalonians and and they've had this effect on other people's lives. They've been the source of encouragement for others. To the point that when Paul and Timothy show up, they want to tell others about the Thessalonians, but they don't get a chance to because the others are saying, have you heard about these Thessalonians and the strength of their faith, their sacrificial love? Paul's like, I'm hearing from other people about what God has done in your life. And how you were content to give up your earthly comfort and and, and give up your idols and to patiently wait for the day when Jesus Christ would set all things right. When Paul calls them to love and to labors of love, he's not calling them to something new. He's charging them to keep walking in the way that they have been known for walking, to not grow weary, not grow faint, not give up. There are so many things that, that clamor for our attention that, that call us to look to them for comfort. And yet, most of them are fleeting. They don't last. What remains, what lasts, are faith, hope, and love. 1 Corinthians thirteen thirteen. These themes that are introduced here in our uh, opening passage in, in 1 Thessalonians are what Paul is going to go on and develop in the chapters to come. Chapters 2 and 3 are going to talk about faith. 
and, and in chapters 4 and 5, he will talk about what walking in love looks like both towards uh, a watching world in, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, and also inside the church in chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. And then in between those two sections, right there in the middle of chapters 4 and 5, he's going to talk about the day of the Lord and what the hope of the resurrection look like so that we might not lose hope. That's what this whole book is about. Faith, hope, and love. So why are we going to spend a, a few months with the Thess- Thessalonians? Well, it's simple. I don't think our world is very different from theirs. For us today, it feels like every day is getting harder to be a Christian. Our views, our beliefs, our values are becoming less tolerated. We live in a time of riots. We live in a time where people are increasingly worried about their safety. And it's not hard to see how the things that they were facing mirror the very things that we're facing. And so we need what they needed. We need words of comfort and encouragement that God spoke to them so that they might not lose heart and grow discouraged and fall into despair. We need to be reminded of why we believed in the first place. We need to be reminded that our future is not unsure. And so we don't need to worry about it. And instead, what we need to spend our time doing is love. Loving. We need to love the world by telling them where hope is found. And we need to love each other by serving each other sacrificially. Along the way, we continually need to be strengthened, built up, drawn back to the basics, fortified in faith, hope, and love. Happens through fellowship and encouraging one another. We we have that responsibility to each other to encourage each other to keep going. It happens when we open God's word together and we hear these wonderful words of encouragement that God first spoke to the Thessalonians and now speaks to us. And it happens as we gather at this table. Because here, God doesn't just feed our bodies. He feeds our souls. He feeds our faith. He feeds our hope. And he feeds our love. Because here we see in visible form the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ came into this world to suffer death for sinners, to die for our sakes. He is the object of our faith. He is the one to whom we have entrusted ourselves to save us from sin and death. But we also see at this table not just the object of our faith, but we see what love looks like. Because love leads to sacrifice. Love leads to service. It's not just supposed to be interesting. Oh, this is what love looks like. It's a model for us to follow, to imitate. The Lord's Supper doesn't just tell us what kind of Savior we have. It tells us what kind of lives we are to live in this world. While we wait for Jesus to return. But it doesn't just tell us about our faith. It doesn't just call us to love. It also proclaims our hope. We use bread and wine to remember the body and blood of our Savior because His body and blood aren't on this earth. They're not something we can go visit. 
Our Lord Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And he is bodily waiting for us in the new creation. He is preparing a home for us. And so as we come, our eyes are set on that glorious hope. Our eyes are set on that day when he will return to call us home so that while we persevere in this world, we would not lose hope. So let us uh, have the elders, or at least the one or two that are with us this morning, come forward that we might receive this uh, gift this morning. Well, please, please bow with me in prayer. Our gracious God and Father, we come to you as those who grow weary, discouraged, and who are tempted sometimes to despair. You know our tendencies to grow irritable, to look for someone to blame, to lose our focus. And we need to go back to the basics to remember the God whom we have trusted, that you are good, and that you save those who place their faith in you. We need to remember what the future holds, that you will one day set all things right, and that our hope is not in vain. And as we await that day, we ask that you would teach us to be engaged in labors of love, to delight in serving one another sacrificially, and to share our hope with the world, so that they too might find true peace in coming to you. All of this we ask through our faithful Savior, who suffered, died, and rose again on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures, Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.